Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Philosophy professor Hugh LaFollette says he was raised in a gun culture. Later, he was struck by the very different policy responses to the killing of children in Dunblane, Scotland, and Newtown, Connecticut. He says, my dis-ease at having no settled view of the topic nagged at me for several years before I decided that agnosticism on this topic was neither intellectually tenable nor morally responsible. I was impelled to examine the arguments and the evidence to reach a fair and informed view. In his new book, In Defense of Gun Control, out from Oxford University Press, LaFala says that the public debate about the private ownership of guns is contentious, often nasty, rarely insightful, and grotesquely oversimplified. In the book, he reviews the various philosophical perspectives on gun control, explains why Americans have a culture of guns not found elsewhere in the developed world, discusses armchair arguments on both sides, and examines empirical evidence related to guns and gun control. Hugh LaFollette is a co-chair in ethics at University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. He mainly teaches and writes in ethics, especially practical ethics. He's author of three other books, editor of many more, and editor-in-chief of the International Encyclopedia of Ethics. Hugh LaFollette, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Let's uh, maybe we could uh, fade uh, Professor LaFollette up uh, further. A little faint right now. Okay, we'll we'll see as we go along. Um, so, uh, tell me that the the story you were uh, you were actually in Scotland at the time of the uh, the, the shootings there in Dunblane, I believe. Uh, actually, uh, I had committed to go to Scotland when it occurred. Okay, I was going to be living at a town working in a town close by, and looked at housing in Dunblane. And just about a month, month and a half before we went to Scotland, uh, the shootings had occurred. And as it turns out, one of the children killed was the child of the man who I was replacing. Hmm. No, that's just yeah, very tragic. Yeah, and so you you would associate with people like you you, you couldn't escape uh, uh, people affected by the tragedy. No, I couldn't. Uh, both both at the university and around the town, I got to meet people who were there. And at the time, I was doing a radio show, an NPR radio show, out of East Tennessee, where I was, and I decided to do an interview with the attorney who represented the parents of the children who were killed there. And so I went to his house uh, in Glasgow, which was about 50 miles away, and spent several hours talking to him before doing the interview. And I think that conversation prompted me to, to think about the issue in a way I hadn't before. So I wonder if we, you could compare and contrast. You say you grew up in gun culture. Um, you have a favorite memory of your dad giving you a, uh, what, a shotgun? or? My dad was an amateur gun collector. I mean, he wasn't well-to-do, so he couldn't afford a lot of guns. But he had a number of guns around, and he was uh, a very big hunter, uh, went hunting with his friends. And I grew up assuming that I would eventually be able to join him. And when he gave me a shotgun on my 13th birthday, I, I felt as if he recognized me as a man, because now I could go hunting. So it was symbolically the acceptance of a gun meant I was I was a man in his eyes, and I was officially part of the gun culture because we would then go hunting together. Um, so the gun culture that's very important, obviously. Um, and then you had this experience 
And uh, you noticed, I, I think, as many of us uh, have done, various tragedies in Europe and elsewhere, very different policy response to, to the one in America, especially comparing and contrasting, you know, the killing of children, which, uh, which, which you know, hits us especially hard. Very different policy responses between the two countries. Sure. I, I do think it's important to understand that I, that I think there was more interest, at least in the topic in the U.S. after Newtown. There, was, there is something about innocent children being and in the case of Dunblane, they were almost all five- and six-year-olds. And you feel these they're, they're people who've not had a chance to live their lives. They're especially vulnerable. We're supposed to be protecting them uh, in here. Uh, Sixteen, as I recall, is the number of those, those children were killed. And indeed, if you know the details of the story, the man went into the school pretty clearly intending on killing every child who was there. And it just so happened that the meeting in the auditorium had canceled early, and all the children had scattered to their disparate rooms. And that was extremely fortuitous, because he went to the to the main meeting hall and, and had ample firearms to kill them all. Hmm. Now, you say that over years, uh, you, you had no settled view of this, um, but you say your dis-ease, having no settled view on the topic, nagged you. Now, you, you know, you're a philosopher. You went about this differently, perhaps, than many uh, do. Um, I, I think many of us settle into our views based on, I don't know, what culture, subculture we're in or, or uh, you know, what our parents thought or what our friends think. Um, I'm guessing you would suggest maybe we ought to be a little more rigorous, generally, in, in examining this. Sure. I mean, I, that's part of the reason that I, I do what I do is, as far as I'm concerned, as a teacher, what I want to do is encourage people to reflect a little more critically on their own views. In my own case, almost everything I've written was written because it was an issue, a problem, a concern that I had that I didn't feel like I had an answer to it. And so I, I would proceed to try to read as much as I could from very disparate views and to try to understand it as carefully and as fairly as I could. Now, that, that's not always easy. But in this case, since I really didn't have a settled view, at least initially, there, that was not a big problem. Uh, I, I think I already understood part of the psychological motivation for owning guns, but I wanted to look at the philosophical and the empirical reasons people had for thinking they ought to own guns, hmm. as well as the reasons why people thought they ought to be controlled. You say the debate, the, the public discussion is uh, very oversimplified. You use the word grotesquely oversimplified. Uh, uh, that's that's the framework we're, we're, I guess, we're by default using. Um, uh, how, how so? How is it so so oversimplified? Sure. Well, uh, you can put it either of two different ways. One is uh, gun control. Uh, are you for it or are you against it? Uh, is one way to put it. But the other is to put it in terms of the Second Amendment. Well, you either support the Second Amendment or you support gun control. And the assumption is that those are our only two options. One of the things that became fairly clear to me is that this is a mistake. It's an oversimplification. And as you said, I called it a grotesque one. Uh, 
grotesque in part because at some level almost everyone acknowledges those aren't the only options. There really are three different policy questions that we have to face. There are continua that we can take a position somewhere along. Who can own what guns and how can those guns be regulated? Now let, let me briefly explain that. When I say who can own what guns, some viewer might, some listener might say, well, everybody can own them. But in fact, almost everyone agrees there can be limits. We don't let two-year-olds own guns. We don't let people in prison own guns. In most states, former felons, especially former violent felons, cannot own guns. If someone is certifiably mentally ill, particularly if they are perhaps prone to rage, we don't want them to own guns. Uh, there was a debate about people on terror watch lists. What about non-citizens? I mean, I think almost any listener will say, some number of those people are people who shouldn't own guns. So one of the questions we have to ask is who can own them? Now, once you know who can own them, there's a question is what can they own? Uh, can they own just any gun? Can they own firearms, most common, or long guns? And if long guns, you can talk about rifles or shotguns. What about assault weapons, which is certainly an issue that people have talked about? But we can go further. Uh, what about bazookas or surface-to-air missiles? Uh, as it turns out, again, pretty much everyone acknowledges there's some of those weapons, firearms, uh, that individuals should not be able to own, private individuals should not be able to own. And and so we've got to ask, that's the second dimension, uh, which guns can they have? And the last one is how do we regulate the guns that people can own? And what I mean by regulate here, it's really a variety of factors. In fact, you could talk about these as being subdimensions. One is you've got to have some kind of regulatory procedure that enforces the first two dimensions. If there's some people who can't have guns, well, then there's got to be something like a registration system that excludes former violent felons. If you don't want individuals to be able to own bazookas, there has to be some kind of registration procedure that make sure they don't. But other forms of regulation are going to have to do with how you acquire them. Uh, can you buy them only through licensed dealers? Can you buy them in gun shows? Can you buy them from friends? Can you get them from gifts as friends? Uh, clearly important issues. And then lastly, can you carry them, and if so, where? Uh, again, people might think, well, you can carry them anywhere if you can own them. Well, as it turns out, no. I Pretty much everyone listening will say, nah, people should not be able to carry them on airlines, although up into the 60s you could. Uh, you can't carry them as a private citizen in Congress. Uh, and as it turns out, in many, many, but not all, churches and schools. So what we've got to ask are those three questions. Who can have them? Which ones can they have? And how can we regulate or control them? And I want to jump into those and uh, talk. You, you, you separated out. You talk about armchair arguments. Have you defined that and talk about those? Uh, talk about the uh, rights-based arguments, and then you look at empirical evidence. Um, uh, but before we jump into that, I want to, and we're we're going to open the phone lines here in about uh, ten minutes, but uh, and and email. But I, I wanted to get this. This came in even before the program started. Uh, Professor LaFollette, and I found it a very, very important question. And you have a whole chapter on this in your book. Uh, I think a lot of us 
wonder about this history. Um, and so this uh, emailer, uh, just a simple question, um, uh, how did America fall in love with guns? I guess another way you could put that is why do Americans have a culture of guns that's not found elsewhere in the developed world? something that intrigued me. I wasn't quite sure. I'd seen various attempts in the literature to answer the question. I was not really convinced by any of them. It seems to me that the matter, the explanation, the best explanation, is that it's largely a historical accident. Now, that's going to sound odd, but let me explain to you what I mean. The United States came to be a country on its own and it went through its formative years, at the very time in the history of firearms that you had the most dramatic advances in firearms. Uh, from the very beginning of the history of firearms until the late 1970s, uh, excuse me, 1770s, no one really in, in the West, uh, outside of a military purpose, had any interest in, desire in, or ability to own firearms. And those that could get them, firearms weren't all that accurate. They were very difficult to load. It took a long time to load. They were often dangerous. And again, they were very expensive. So you had the country coming to be at a time when firearms were starting to make serious and improvements and developments that made them far more useful. As it turns out, they, they were useful in three different ways in the United States. I mean, most obviously. One was militarily. We didn't have, I mean, most of our, our we didn't have a standing army in the way that you would ordinarily think about it, in the way that a lot of countries in Europe would have had. They were mostly manned by average citizens. And so the average citizens would bring whatever firearms they had to fight in the war. And it's the weapon that was used to gain our independence. It was used in the War of 1812. And, of course, it was used, they were used in our own war, Civil War, uh, in, in the mid-1800s. Uh, secondly, the guns, the, the huge advancement in guns came uh, 1850 and later. And oddly enough, it's the very time when there was a huge push west in the country. And so guns were used both by settlers to protect themselves, but also, quite frankly, to uh, defend themselves or take aggressive stances toward Native Americans. And associated with that was that a lot of people in America lived in rural areas much later than our comparable countries did in Europe. And in a rural environment, guns were much more valuable or important. They were important for protecting yourself. They were important for uh, protecting your crops against uh, uh, pests. So they had an extremely practical purpose, again, which they didn't tend to have in Europe. European societies had more or less developed certain ways, and individuals didn't, didn't really see the need for having guns. And the last thing it turns out was just happenstance. At the end of the Civil War, both 
sides were able to keep their guns that had been issued uh, by their respective armies. And that itself vastly increased the number of guns in civilians' hands. Mm. Interesting. And, then, and of course, culture, it's very influential on politics, which then produces policy. That's, uh, that does, you know, culture is very important in, in this. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's take a break when we come back more with uh, Hugh LaFollette. Uh, he is author uh, most recently of an interesting new book from Oxford University Press. It's called In Defense of Gun Control. And uh, we'll open the phone lines uh, shortly. Email as well, uh, 800-826-1495 or upraccess at gmail.com. More following this break. Anna Cohen uses pulsed lasers to map ancient cities. David Geller works to identify space junk to prevent catastrophes in orbit. Together, we're going to be talking about what drives people to search for things they can't see and how to best encourage young people to explore scientific careers. The Anthropologist and the Aerospace Engineer on Undisciplined, Friday at 2. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie, and restaurant reviews, available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. Make this the summer of blues by joining Utah Public Radio on July 29th for our new event, Blues, Brews, and Barbecue at the Vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms. Come enjoy the warm summer evening air with a plate of barbecue food and outdoor live music performances from Nora Barlow and the Sammy Hickson Blues Band. Hang out with the UPR crew and say hello to the MC for the evening, our favorite jazz time host, Steve Williams. It's easy to join us. Just head to upr.org for more details and to get your tickets. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We are talking with Hugh LaFollette. He is Cole Chair in Ethics at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. He is uh, author of uh, several books, editor of uh, many, editor in chief of the International Encyclopedia of Ethics, and his most recent book is In Defense of Gun Control. That's out from Oxford University Press. Uh, he says, My dis-ease at having no settled view of the topic nagged at me for several years, so he took an in-depth study of this. The result is the book, and we have him for the hour. Uh, so, Professor uh, LaFollette, you uh, you talk about armchair arguments, I guess, on, on either side or all sides here. I guess, first of all, define armchair argument. Sure. Uh, the problem is people can have very different sense of the term. I mean, sometimes people will consider BS uh, as an armchair argument. People just sort of pop off about whatever view they happen to have. That's not what I mean. What I mean by armchair arguments is arguments that are shaped by background that li- uh, information that lies in the background. It's part of one's reservoir of knowledge. And these are used to explain and understand for instance, the causes of harm, uh, how exactly to reason, how to look at the uh, implications of our views, how to think about an issue honestly and fairly. Let me give you a quick example. Are you familiar with the TV show Elementary? Uh, yes, I've seen it a couple okay. times, yeah. If you've ever seen it, one of the things that, that should fascinate you is Holmes uh, often ends up solving a problem by 
having some seemingly irrelevant tidbit of evidence that helps him interpret what he sees in the crime scene. That's an armchair argument. It, 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 you aren't explicitly doing any new research, but it's reservoirs of knowledge that you have that inform how you behave. Interesting, yeah. Uh, so what uh, what are some of the armchair arguments then, uh, you know, the program... To, uh, and I'm I'm framing it in an oversimplified way here on all sides, I guess, of the of the gun debate. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, we can begin with with really very, fairly simple ones. Uh, one is, and and I think this is in fact the, the proper way to begin. Here I am as a private citizen. I want to own a gun. What business does the government have in telling me either that I can't own a gun or tells me how I can own a gun. I mean, that's an armchair argument. It has to do with our understanding of what it is to live in a liberal democracy where people are assumed to, to be able to do what they want to do unless their action is going to harm someone else. And so someone could say, well, how is my owning a gun going to harm anyone? Why should I be, be able to own it? Now, the others are much more concrete about specific benefits and costs of owning one is, uh, someone could say, look, one of the reasons I want to have a gun is they can help an individual defend themselves against an attack. Uh, or uh, they can help individuals who need to resist a totalitarian regime. One philosopher writes about you know, the, the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto or individuals who happened to live in Cambodia at the time of the killing fields that guns or firearms would be an effective way, potentially an effective way, of resisting a totalitarian government. Now, could both of these claims be true? Well, it's not only that they both could be true, they both are at least sometimes true. There's absolutely no doubt that sometimes an individual, by having a firearm, can stop an assault or a homicide that might have been committed otherwise. It might well be, it probably is, at least sometimes true, that armed citizens can stop rogue governments. So uh, that's what I mean by armchair argument, and this also gets to the issue of fairness. Both sides ought to admit those claims are true. They may not be true always or in general or for the most part, but are they sometimes true? Absolutely. Likewise, individuals who want to control guns will say that, wait a moment, we also have pretty good armchair arguments about why it's dangerous to let people own guns. The assumption is that the more people who have guns, the more people who might use them to commit crimes or to commit homicides, either intentionally or out of anger, they're more likely to commit suicides and they're more likely to be successful when they do, they're more likely to have accidents. These are armchair arguments, but they're not just you know, pie in the sky. All those claims are true. Well, of course, guns will sometimes be used uh, inappropriately. Uh, of course, an two people uh, are in a bar and they get into a fight, and rather than just having fisticuffs, one of them pulls out a gun and shoots the other. Is that going to happen sometimes? Well, of course it is. Are people going to die from gun accidents? Well, of course they are. 
So uh, the armchair arguments at least tell us, or ought to tell us, that some of the insights on both sides are true at least some of the time, and true enough that we ought to consider them in trying to decide how to behave. And then, of course, what we need to find out is, well, how true are they? How often do these things um, and so do, do we, uh, I guess we would look to empirical evidence to support the armchair arguments. The armchair kind of frames the debate, but uh, t- to what do we appeal then to, to resolve this? Sure. Well, there are two things that people tend to do. One, it, from the, the moral arena, people tend to talk about rights. And in this country, at least, they tend to talk about legal rights, primarily the Second Amendment, my only point here, though, is, well, actually, I want to make two points about that. One is that I'm not concerned primarily about the legal issue. You know, we could have debates about exactly what the Second Amendment means and how it ought to be interpreted and implemented. But the fact is the Constitution sometimes gets it wrong. Uh, we, The Constitution permitted slavery. The Constitution did not let women vote. And we changed it. So by saying that it's a moral argument rather than a legal one, I'm simply wanting to acknowledge is maybe the Constitution does give us a right, but it shouldn't. Or if the Supreme Court had ruled otherwise in Heller, as they in fact had in previous cases, if they had said it doesn't, individuals do not have a right to privately own guns, we might say, yeah, that's a mistake. They should have the right. So I'm concerned primarily about the, the the moral argument. And one of the claims is going to be that people have a right to own guns, whether that exactly how that is to be understood is debatable. But you're also right that an important part of the debate is carried on in asking about the empirical evidence. What does the empirical evidence show? All I mean by empirical evidence here is evidence that is collected Acquired usually through some kind of investigation and gives us some information, actually, which answers some of the questions we posed in, in talking about armchair arguments. Hmm. How beneficial are guns? Uh, the pro-gun argument empirically primarily rests on two pillars, what I want to consider two pillars. One is it's an argument about what are called DGUs, or defensive gun uses. And the claim is that guns are used defensively far more often than people suppose. That is one reason we want to have guns. And the second specifically has to do with what happens if you give people the right to carry arms in more pla- more people to carry arms in more places. And uh, the claim there has been that, that right to carry laws, or what are sometimes called shell-issue laws, the government shall issue a permit unless there are specific reasons why they shouldn't, that these lead to lower crime rates, lower rape rates, uh, lower homicide rates. So the empirical arguments on that side are going to be, what are the benefits of guns, primarily in terms of self-defense, either in the home or out of the home when one is carrying And then the empirical arguments that have to do with control is, okay, how often are guns used in violent crimes, in homicides, in suicides, 
in accidents, uh, when people get angry or jealous. And, and so the empirical evidence is an attempt to find out what actually are the costs and the benefits of owning guns. Hmm. Uh, so you you did a review, right? An extensive <laughs> review. One of the limitations is uh, Congress has placed limits on the CDC in in studying gun violence. That's so. Uh, that's probably the depressed the the amount of empirical evidence. What uh, what did you find? Did you find anything conclusive? To your mind? Uh, no. All right. Let let me uh, let me back up and say a little bit about the project, which which should put what I'm going to say in context. I, I really wanted to understand the issues, and I wanted to be fair in explaining what the issues are. Now, in the end, do I come up with a conclusion, a view about what we ought to do? Yes. But that was not the motivation for writing the book. Uh, in, in part, I found myself, particularly as I tried to work through the empirical evidence, is seeing what it is that we would need to know in order to make an informed empirical judgment. If, if I, as a private citizen, am I or should I support some forms of gun control? If so, which ones and why? If I, as a private citizen, am going to say, no, I don't want these forms of gun control, why? So uh, did I find any definitive answer? If by definitive you mean absolutely slam dunk, the answer is no. And part of the problem is it's more difficult to do that than you might think. Uh, let, let me give you one example, which I discussed. One individual said that there's evidence over that over the past 20 years, the number of guns have increased while the number of homicides have decreased. So it, it can't be that gun control works, and it can't be that having lots of guns increases homicides. The problem is that claim overlooks some obvious problems. One is what matters is not the number of guns, it's the number of people who have guns. And what's been interesting is that actually the percentage of people who have guns has dropped and dropped moderately precipitously. It's just that the people who have them have more of them. The second thing is about his correlation. He, he cites this correlation. As it turns out, there's better better explanation of what's going on that he doesn't consider. Uh, one is it turns out that although there have been fewer homicides, there actually have been more shootings. They've gone, According to the Wall Street Journal, the number of shootings has increased by 50%, which is huge. And that almost looks like more guns or shootings. But as it turns out, that would be a bit rash to immediately assume assume that's what the information shows. The second is that there are better explanations for why people aren't dying when they get shot, and that is that we have much better trauma centers, we have much better trained trauma surgeons, we have much better transportation that gets people from where they're shot to those trauma centers. So the reason not as many people die isn't that they aren't being shot, it's that we have better ways of controlling who dies once they so I, I, I don't, well, okay, I, 
I'll let you ask me if there's some specific question you want to know, or maybe one of your listeners wants to know. I'll try that again. Uh, uh, yes, we do have a couple. We have an email in from uh, Steve, so let me go to that. Now, you can uh, join the conversation as well at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Also, our phone number, 800-826-1495. Uh, I'll take uh, Steve's uh, second point uh, first. He's he's written us twice. Um, okay. He's uh, obviously interested in the topic. Yeah, he is, yes. Uh, so Steve says, It's frustrating to listen to your guests compare armchair arguments as though they are all equivalent. This is a both-sides-do-it uh, approach. There is empirical data out there, and we need not philosophize as though we are ignorant of it. Of course, that he wrote that, I think, before we got to the empirical. Um, then Steve goes on, uh, It is established fact that armed citizens almost never prevent violence from happening. Uh, it is also well established that the possession of guns exponentially increases the rate of gun deaths by murder, suicide, and accident. It is not uh, all symmetrical. The data are known, says Steve. Well, okay. Uh, let, let me address that by also pointing out something which I had not mentioned before. I mean, I talked about it as if there are only two views on empirical evidence, the people who support the use of guns and those who are opposed to it. There was an extremely important study done uh, about eight years ago. The National Academies of Science got together a group of distinguished scholars uh, to examine violence uh, and homicide rates and guns. And what they said was, you know, there are a few things that we do know, and, and one, as it turns out, is one of the ones that your guest mentions, that there is a correlation between the presence of guns and the increase in homicides and so on. Although simply pointing out a correlation does not establish causation. Point that out. But their main conclusion is that there's an awful lot that we don't know. That we're just guessing. And indeed there's a very lengthy appendix written by the statistician who tries to explain why it will be extremely hard to ever get knock-down, drag-out proof of the sort that the listener claims that we have. Uh, do I think there's some evidence in the direction of what the listener says? Absolutely. But I also understand that there's some evidence in favor of the claims about the use of defensive gun uses and about the benefits of carrying there are also some problems, but I, I simply think it's much more complicated than, than your listener suggests. And I've tried to be as careful and as fair as possible. Now, part of the problem is a lot of this information is extremely difficult to read, extremely difficult to understand, and we've got to have some kind of ability to read what a purported expert says, and then make a judgment about the accuracy or wisdom or insight uh, of what that purported author says, hmm. authority says. Uh, let me read uh, Steve's first email now, um, and this gets us into um, you know uh, statistics. America more violent. 
um, than, than many uh, nations. Have you commented this, uh, Professor LaFollette? Steve says, America is a uniquely insular nation. There are uh, There is a host of things we do very badly, which other countries do pretty well, uh, but, but we don't want to know about their experience, so we blunder along unplugged and benighted. Earlier this morning on UPR, Carrie Bringhurst mentioned one of these areas. The United States spends more on health care than any other country and yet produces outcomes that significantly lag the rest of the developed world. We're fatter, we're shorter, we die much younger than residents of other developed nations. And in Access Utah this morning, you're discussing gun violence, which is another of these policies where America does astonishingly poorly compared to our peer nations and compared to all the rest of the globe, too, come to think of it. But darn if we will benefit from the experience of the rest of the world. I changed one of your words there, Steve, to uh, make sure we're okay with the FCC. Uh, Our insularity is quite literally uh, killing us. On the healthcare front, on the gun front, and other social policies too. Uh, that's that's Steve's uh, comparison to to other developed nations. Sure, uh, I mean the uh, the comments about healthcare are interesting, and in another environment, another uh, venue, I would be happy to pursue that. But let's just talk about guns. I mean, the first thing to point out is one of the things he said is not quite right, or at least it's mistaken. It, it's not the case that when compared to the rest of the world, we do things worse. For example, that we have higher homicide rates. There are a number of countries in the world that have higher homicide rates than ours. However, they do not tend to be, they are not what we might call developed Western countries. Uh, they tend to be much smaller countries that are much poorer. I mean, if you look at the actual homicide rate, the United States is, We're certainly uh, not the best by any means, but but we're also not the worst. Now, if you're talking about a comparison with what you might consider similar countries, countries in Western Europe, Canada, Australia, Japan, yes, there we do come out uh, much worse when it comes to guns. Now, as it turns out, the pro-gun people, what I'm calling the pro-gun people, acknowledge, or generally they acknowledge that, but they have an explanation. They say, look, you're, you're saying that the cause is that more people have guns. Uh, there are different explanations. Perhaps, in fact, the most common explanation given is that relative to many of these countries, the United States uh, is more heterogeneous, more different. They're more sort of different people that live here rather than uh, homogeneous, and and countries where most of the people are of the same uh, ethnic and religious uh, backgrounds, there's less tension, therefore there's less violence, uh, there's less room for for homicides. Now, I don't entirely buy that, but it seems to me it's not, it, it seems to me it probably explains some of the difference. Comparing us, for example, with uh, Japan uh, or maybe some of the Scandinavian countries, Uh, other people say, no, no, it's that uh, uh, the other countries are more authoritarian than we are, and more authoritarian countries don't tend to let individuals own guns, and that's the difference. So, uh, yeah, I think there are many ways in which we fail as a country, and I'm not denying that. But I think when it comes to the issue of guns, although I'm inclined to agree with what your listener says, I think it's a bit overstated. Mm-hmm. 
Um, uh, this gets to a very important point. Um, you, you know, you, the temptation uh, or, or the hope, let me put it that way, the hope is that we could appeal to solid empirical evidence and that we could all come on board and agree to whatever the policy would be. Um, but here's an example where, indisputable, for whatever reason, America, uh, compared to other developed nations, peer, peer nations, you know, more gun violence. Um, and then the argument becomes interpreting that evidence, right? Sure. Again, a part of the problem is simply because, and that was one of the reasons I gave the, the example earlier about the correlation between the increase in guns and the decrease in homicides. Simply because you do or do not have a correlation does not necessarily establish that one causes the other. And what you need to know if you're trying to figure out whether to permit or whether to control guns, and if you are going to control them, how to control them, you need to have a sense of what the causal relationships are. Otherwise, any policy simply isn't going to work. And that's much harder to identify. And, and as I mentioned in the statistical appendix to the National Academies of Science study group, tries to explain why it's so difficult to come up with completely rock-solid evidence. I mean, if you think about it in other contexts, is coffee safe to drink? Well, it depends on the year. I mean, I, I, I love coffee, but I'm, I, I've been through hearing that it was great for you and it was bad for you. It's great for you, it's bad for you. It's great for you and it's bad for you. Now, does that mean that there's no evidence at all? No, that's not what it means. Does it mean that people who are making, doing these studies don't know what they're talking about? No. It just means it's very hard to get incontrovertible empirical evidence. Hmm. That doesn't mean you can't act on what you do have. But you need to keep an open mind to seeing what the evidence is from different perspectives. So you're you're coming at this, you know. You're a philosopher. You're coming at this. Uh, you're, you're trying to reason through the, the the arguments, and you're you you're right about it. You're very aware that uh, much of the public debate, um, many people don't come at it anywhere near from that perspective, right? You you say that any Absolutely. hope for progress on this issue, I would add parenthetically on any issue that divides us, uh, requires civil, honest, and fair. Uh, discussion, not name calling, not not what uh, passes for debate now. So, a uh, you know, key question I have is, uh, how do we get there? Uh, not easily. As it turns out, one of the ways in which we can get there, I think, is by trying to avoid certain things, name calling, uh, simply dismissing someone's view. But the other is to realize that, despite the differences, there are at least some commonalities, and that's, if you go back to the very beginning when I talked about the complexities of the issues, pretty much everyone recognizes that some people should not be allowed to own guns. Pretty much everyone recognizes that some guns no one should be able, some firearms no one should be able to own, and therefore, pretty much everyone recognizes that we need to have some kind of regulatory system, if nothing else to implement the, uh, the, our response to the first two issues. So we do have some commonalities, and it would be interesting to try to understand why 
pro-gun people think we shouldn't let former felons have guns. I mean, they've served their sentence, they've done their time, they've paid their debt. Uh, if guns are helpful to protect oneself from violent attacks, that's going to be true of a former felon as well as an ordinary citizen. So why can't they have guns? Why can't two-year-olds have guns? Uh, why can't someone who's certifiably mentally ill on a gun? Why can't individuals have surface-to-air missiles? And once they give an account of why they accept those limits, then at least we have some common ground to look at the arguments and the reasons and the evidence they give for those restrictions and then see if they can legitimately be expanded. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with Hugh LaFollette. His uh, new book is In Defense of Gun Control. It's out from Oxford University Press. You can join this conversation at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or 800-826-1495. More following this break. Can a song really cause a wave of suicides? Supposedly, when they played it on the radio, people committed suicide after listening to it, so it was banned. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we'll uncover data about suicide. Can it be contagious? Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Hugh LaFollette. We have about uh, six minutes left in the discussion. You can join it at uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Hugh LaFollette's new book is In Defense of Gun Control. It's out from Oxford University uh, Press. So, Hugh LaFollette, in, in our last uh, segment here, I want to get to some conclusions that you came to uh, in, the, in the book and uh, a return to the questions that uh, that you felt are important, uh, who should have which guns, and how, if at all, should we regulate the guns that people may legitimately own? You said uh, that we greatly oversimplify this. It's either you know all gun control or all gun rights. You say there's a continuum. Uh, what did you come down to? Well, okay, given that we only have about five minutes, uh, there are a number of very specific proposals that are probably more familiar to the listeners about assault weapons, particularly weapons with high-capacity magazines, uh, registration, waiting periods, uh, more carefully controlling transfers of guns. All those things, I think, are relevant. But but I think one of the things that, that I do that is a bit unique, but I think it's worth considering, is what I call indirect control of guns. In other words, rather than having express expressly forbidding the ownership of some guns, although, you know, when it comes to things like bazookas, we can do that. If we can find a way to indirectly control guns, that would be beneficial. And 
One of the ways of doing that is by using mandatory liability insurance. Now, the idea here is really very simple. If I drive a car, uh, in, in most states at least, I think in 49 out of 50, and even the one that for which this isn't true, it's sort of true, individuals have to have liability insurance when they drive. Why? Well, the assumption is if I cause harm by my car, then I should be responsible for and compensate the person that I've harmed. And that's true whether I cause the harm because I'm drunk, uh, because I wasn't paying attention, I was talking on my cell phone, uh, because I went to sleep, I was driving too tired, uh, or because of something wholly beyond my control. A car swerved out in front of me, and to avoid it, I veered over to the other lane and hit your car, for instance. Now, the assumption is that whatever the explanation, however I came to hit your car, if I caused the harm to your car, or if I caused harm to you, I should make compensation to you. Uh, and most people, unless they're very rich, often could not afford to make adequate compensation to someone they've harmed without insurance. I mean, it's one of the reasons most individuals who own a home also have some kind of liability insurance for their home as well as liability insurance to their car. Now, my, my idea is simply require everyone who owns a gun to have liability insurance. Now, as it turned out, the National Rifle Association actually encourages their members to have liability insurance because they know sometimes individuals are harmed by guns someone owns, and the individual has to pay, and it's much easier to pay if insurance covers it. If you had mandatory liability insurance, it would have multiple beneficial effects. One is it means that individuals who are harmed would be compensated. Two, it means that the individual who caused the harm would be doing the compensation, albeit by insurance. But three, if you had mandatory liability insurance, People who were gun owners would want to try to do whatever they could to lower the premiums in the same way that you want to lower the premiums in your car. And there's some things that you can do to lower the premiums on your car or on your house. If you want to lower it in your car, if you have a child, you have them take driver's aid. On your home, if you want to lower the premiums on uh, damage to your home, you install fire alarms or you install deadbolts or you have a security system. The idea is that mandatory insurance or insurance of some sort requires or encourages people to take steps to be more careful with their automobile or around their home than they might have been otherwise. And the idea of requiring gun owners to have insurance not only means that people will be compensated by the person who caused the harm, is it will encourage gun owners to be more careful and perhaps encourage some potential gun owners to say, yeah, I'm not sure I really want to spend that extra money, not only for the gun but also for the insurance. Hmm. So it, it, it seems to me it could indirectly have very valuable moral ends and potentially become
become a way to lessen people's interest in uh, having at least a large number of guns. Interesting, interesting idea. Uh, of course, there's several other uh, things there in that chapter as well we don't have uh, time for. Um, interesting book, a potentially valuable book, uh, people check this out, In Defense of Gun Control from Oxford University Press. The author is Hugh LaFollette. Uh, he is co-chair in ethics at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. Professor LaFollette, thank you so much. Okay, it's been fun. I'm uh, sorry, there are a lot of things I didn't get to. Well, we'll have to ramble on too much. Well, we'll we'll point people to the book. Um, Thank you. Appreciate that. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Debbie Andrew, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Discount Tire and Automotive for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time on Utah Public Radio. If you enjoy tuning into my program Sunday nights, then come join me at UPR's upcoming events, Blues, Brews, and Barbecue on July 29th. We'll listen to music from Nora Barlow and the Sammy Hickson Blues Band with Jim Schaub and Doug Jones, performed outside of the beautiful vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms. I'd love to meet you and talk blues and jazz over some barbecue food and live music. To get your tickets, just go to upr.org. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUSC Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Hey!